Hello and welcome to the MISUN podcast. This is the podcast where we talk to MISUN members and their associates about their ongoing and current research into the medieval world of Central Europe. I'm Karen Culver, and today it is my great pleasure to meet and talk with Pavel Fogursky about his research into medieval liturgy and the making of a political identity in Poland at the turn of the millennium. I find that a very interesting combination, I will admit. Pavel is an assistant professor at the Institute of Art in the Polish Academy of Sciences and the Humboldt Research Fellow at the University of Regensburg. His research focuses on the history of political theological thought in medieval Europe and on the implications that history for debates in contemporary political theology. His particular interests include pre-modern kingship, manuscript studies, history of liturgy. In the past, he studied and researched at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana, USA, where he studied theology and was a researcher at Trinity College, Cambridge. In his free time, he enjoys teaching, swimming, hiking, and smoking a pipe. Pavel, welcome to the Mesem podcast. Thank you very much, Karen, for having me, and thank you for this kind and generous introduction. Can I start with a very basic question on the Christian liturgy? What did the people of the early medieval period understand by the Christian liturgy, and how did they encounter it? Thank you for this truly fundamental question. Um, let me answer it uh, maybe from a different angle. In the Middle Ages, what we today call liturgy, for the medieval people did not use this word to describe ritual behavior. This was conceived then differently than in our secular age. In the nowadays popular perception in the West, at least, religion is generally understood as an area belonging to the private sphere, suited for intellectual deliberation and emotional experience, rather than for public action and forging of state policies. Medieval Christianity, with its rituals in turn, had a more holistic approach to religion, namely, Christian ideas and the rights that were expressing those ideas encompassed every area of human existence. The entire pre-modern life and death and the passage from one to the other were continuously imprinted with the Christian liturgy. Medieval people, lowly and of higher status, were required by church regulations to attend at least once a week, the worship services in the churches, and occasionally they used to perform other rituals, like penance and processions, among others. From the sources around the year 1000, which is the period of the Ottonian ruling dynasty in the Roman Empire, we do hear about the intense experience of liturgy, not only among the clergy, which is more expected, but also within the laity. How did the medieval people perceive liturgy? Obviously, there are numerous answers, depending on whom we seek to ask. For the selected monarchs and political elite, the liturgy was similar in function to law. Liturgy ordered the societies and even proposed some measures of government. This is why Matilda, one of the duchesses from Swabia, today in Germany, 
sent around 1026 a liturgical treatise to the Polish king, Mieszko II. Matilda decided to send the normative text on how Roman liturgy should be celebrated not to the Polish Archbishop of Gniezno or any other bishop, but to the king. It is the anointed monarch who is the leader over the local church in Polonia, Poland, and it is the ruler who is responsible for the introduction of the proper worship of God, as we read in, this le in the letter that accompanies the liturgical treatise. According to Evans Kantorowicz, one of the most prominent medievalists of the past century, liturgy around the year 1000 was an influential cultural marker that defined the role and responsibilities of royal power, hence his label liturgical kingship, to describe the government of Ottonian dynasty around the year 1000. Could I just ask, you, you mentioned the word there, Polonia. Uh, what does the word Polonia mean? Actually, it's hard to um, judge based on the um, uh, available sources because all of them stem from later period than we are talking about. But various scholars try to reconstruct the medieval meaning of the term. And in the Slavic language spoken then in the areas, Polonia could have meant inhabited civilized territory, inhabited by a cultivated not pagan population. Mm. Nice name to give the country you are creating. This is Polonia. We are a civilized place. Um, in your recently published book, Political Liturgies in the High Middle Ages, Beyond the Legacy of Ernst H. Katarowicz, which is edited by yourself, Johanna Dale and Pieter Bitterbeyer, you imply that the academic study of ritual and ceremony has been in one silo, while another silo has looked at the rituals of politics and rulership. So quite separated. Why do you think these two areas of ritual study or study of ritual have been separated, particularly when religion is such a key aspect of medieval life? And why are you now trying to address that and study ritual behavior between the two, between the church and the king? And this is a pretty broad question on historiography. <laughs> so uh, we have to spend a, a little time to answer this. So like the political role that rituals can play is, of course, well acknowledged in current scholarship. Um, Many historians of the Middle Ages uh, researched uh, medieval ritual behavior. However, in their investigations, they largely glossed over liturgy. Uh, Ernst Kantorowicz asserted in 1946 that it is really no longer possible for the medieval historian to deal cheerfully with the history of medieval thought and culture without ever opening a missal. Yet liturgy has never truly entered the mainstream of historians' training in academia, and many medievalists still research political culture without thinking to consult a liturgical book. This, of course, doesn't mean that this field was not researched, uh, quite to the contrary. 
There was an intense liturgical scholarship on various rituals of the past that concerned uh, worship. Uh, however, most often the scholars who were researching liturgy were motivated by contemporary pastoral concerns. They were very often trying to uh, reform worship in contemporary Christian denominations that they belong to, rather than to understand past societies through a study of liturgy. And among these pastoral concerns in the 19th and 20th century, the interest in political activities did not figure highly. To me, it seems that this was a consequence of secularization that was enforced in the 19th and 20th century and the expansion of the idea that religion is a private uh, um, issue. It's an area of personal convictions standing apart from the secular arena, which is considered an autonomous sphere of human public existence. This per modern pers perception of uh, religion uh, has gained ground in 20th century philosophy, sociology, even Christian theology itself. The predominant interest of liturgists has not so much been in studying political meaning of the past worship practices. On the other hand, we had a scholarship focused on kingship. Uh, already when Kantorowicz was writing his Laudes Regia that I quoted from, this was published in 1946, but he was writing it for a long time before the war. He, when he already exhorted to open a missal when uh, we were about to study political culture, there had already been substantial research on royal inauguration rites, for example, by Persier Schramm, war liturgy, acclamations, votive masses, studies by Tellenbach, and paraliturgical healing rituals performed by monarchs, described by Mark Bloch. These and numerous other scholars, of course, noticed the overarching significance of liturgical phenomena on political culture of Middle Ages. Yet, overall, all the increasing curiosity, different interest into liturgy still, generally speaking, seem to remain disconnected from one another. And fields of actual liturgical study are often sealed off from other disciplines within medieval studies. This is why I would like to become some kind of a bridge builder between the usually disjointed disciplines of political sciences, medieval studies, and liturgical theology. It seems to me that this approach offers a new understanding of medieval societies. Hmm, that's an interesting point. Um, in my other internship, I spend a lot of time with political scientists. Maybe I should take up religion as well. <laughs> Yes, for example, um, we just witnessed this year the coronation of Charles uh, with we a did. very meticulously prepared order in the ceremony. Uh, of course, we have a lot of ordinance coronandi from the past, from the medieval period, and whereas they are very often studied. But I haven't noticed in the guidebooks, for example, for political sciences to discuss selected ordinance, which I would find uh, missing in the curriculum, not to study the texts that were at core of ideal of Christian kingship. Mm. And even now today, I understand in many British churches, one of the final prayers of a service would include 
uh, a prayer for the king, a prayer for the country. It's uh, in the even song, almost every even song in Cambridge. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Not that I've ever been to an even song in Cambridge, but you are lucky that you have. Um, talking about church liturgy, I'm wondering how, in this early medieval period, did the liturgy propagate the name of the country and have it so deeply internalized by the people? Um, where did the name Polonia and the king's name come in? Yes, thank you, Karen. Maybe before we jump into the details, let me sketch a little background for those who are less familiar with Polish history. So Polonia that we are talking about is an, the name of the country governed by Boleslav the Brave of the Piast ruling dynasty in the late 10th and early 11th century. And this realm stretched from the Baltic Rim in the north to the Carpathian Mountains in the south and in the west from the other river to the upper part of the Dniester River in the east today in Ukraine. And this name, Polonia, differed from the one, from the name used by Boleslav's father, Mieszko I, who was called the King of the North, the King of the Slavs, the Duke of the Vandals, a magnate, a Margaret. So it seems that Polonia was newly introduced around the year 1000 to denote all the territories conquered by Boleslav. And these vast territories were inhabited by numerous people whose voices we usually do not have the chance to hear. However, it is intriguing that amidst this deep silence, we do find numerous vernacular translations of liturgical texts, usually the penance formula in Slavonic and Germanic, as well as the texts that could have served during the weekly Eucharist, also translated into languages that could have been understood beyond those who knew Latin. Occasionally, we do hear about the vernacular preaching of the new faith by missionaries like Wojciech Adalbert and Bruno of Querfurt. However, the precise reaction to Christianity by subordinates of the Piast is a rather unknown. The failure, however, of the so-called pagan reaction in the 30s of the 11th century this was a revolt directed against the Piast government and the Christianity brought by the dynasty. But this revolt failed, which might suggest that there were serious tensions within the elite and broader society, but not as intense to endanger the Christianization entirely. If we look, for example, on the neighboring Polybian Slavs, they are going back and forth between the Christian religion and paganism at that time. Whereas Polonia was stable. There was this revolt in the 30s, but it was not successful. So it seems to me that Christianity was already so deeply ingrained among the Polish political elite in the 11th century. And I mean here the Piast ruling dynasty and the other noble families, that the reverse to paganism was not conceivable in the long run and found no effective support in the 30s of the 11th century. I'm now suddenly thinking, you've got a society that's expanding massively. Um, I know Boleswaf the Brave conquered a lot of lands 
and introduce Christianity. I wonder if the elites of the period were equating the two, Christianity, power, power, Christianity. Um, on that basis, who would want to go back to paganism and have a small country? I think like uh, your question, Karen, might stem from this modern understanding of the division between a religion and politics. Uh, yes, you're right. Not it does. really a medieval rendering of the issue. Uh, being a Christian ruler around the year 1000 meant that you were leading your, yourself and your people to salvation, but also health, life in fullness. And this life in fullness was understood as prosperity in order here on earth that brings you to eternal happiness in the afterlife. The earthly and heavenly kingdoms were intermingled. There was no conception of the autonomous secular sphere outside of the rule of Christian God. And that is why the liturgical life of the elite and the subordinates was an intrinsic part of politics in all Christian kingdoms. But... Coming back to the church liturgy, where, how was the king's name and the country's name invoked? I know where now it's invoked, it's sort of a quick mention at the end, but in this period, where was it? So there were numerous occasions to invoke the name of a country or a ruler in the contemporary liturgical books. Uh, the problem with uh, early medieval Poland is that um, none of the early sacramentaries or missals where those invocations were most common survive. But based on the analysis of 500 <laughs> or even more uh, now uh, liturgical books that I've done, I can uh, say uh, securely that there must have been liturgical books in early medieval Poland and that they did contain these invocations of names. But we can also answer this question with the manuscript that did survive. Fortunately, it is precisely the liturgical text in the liturgical manuscript that contains for the first time the new name of the country, Polonia. Uh, there is a manuscript today in Bamberg. It was produced originally in Reichenau at the Lake Constance, and it contains the chant, Annua Recolamus. Uh, this was a sequence, which is a liturgical chant that was performed before the gospel reading. And it's in the honor of a new saint, Saint Adalbert of Prague, Wojciech. Uh, Wojciech was martyred in 997. And uh, this chant was prepared to venerate this newly elevated saint. And one of the lines of this chant runs as follows. Let me read it in Latin and then I translate. Polania ergo tanti sepeliens floret martiri pignora, which we could translate as Poland flourishes by bearing the monuments of so great a martyrdom. And it refers to the fact that body of St. Adalbert was laid in Gniezno. I would like to invite you to listen to these lines performed by the Ensemble Peregrina under the direction of Agnieszka Budzińska-Bennett. This chant uh, comes from the album Sacernidos, which is available on numerous online platforms. Now I just want you to listen to this line. 
And uh, I'm aware with the fact that this piece does not enter entirely sound as around year 1000, but it's still worth listening. Thanks to this very text, we can date very precisely this manuscript. Because the next line refers to the bringing of Adalbert's arm to Rome. Uh, Otto ventured out to Rome and he laid the uh, arm of St. Adalbert on the Isola Tibertina in the newly dedicated church to St. Adalbert. He might have stopped in Reichenau where this manuscript was produced. Uh, where also Otto established a new church in honor of St. Adalbert. So we can for sure say that Reichenau, for sure, knew the sequence, and very early on Bamberg, because the manuscript was donated by Henry II, the next emperor, to Bamberg, his beloved city, his beloved bishopric. So we can see that the new name in the new chant, in honor of the new saint, was performed in the centers of the empire. It was sung by clergy, mostly, who could have understood the message of this sophisticated sequence. Similarly, it was the monasteries that were the audience of another text used during liturgy, which are hagiographic texts composed in honor of St. Adalbert. In the Vita Prior and Vita Altera, the first and the second life of St. Adalbert, there is also the invocation of the name, not of the country, but of the people, Polony. And those readings, especially from Vita Prior, the first life, were incorporated into later offices, which is another liturgical genre performed by monks. So we can see that we have various monasteries who were venerating St. Adalbert, and they were using those texts. So... Anuare Colamus chant, Lives of St. Adalbert, and all those texts were transmitting the new name of a country, Polonia. But this is the clerical audience. Yeah. You had to be learned to understand this message of this complicated Latin very often, or uh, rituals that were not open to everybody, as, for example, the hagiographic readings in the monasteries. But a liturgical practice that could have been understood by the lowly strata of the society, and they were required to be in the church, is the invocation of king's name. And, and this issue is very important because if we understand how medieval, early medieval kingship functioned, it was itinerant kingship. The ruler was traveling all around his realm. The borders were fluctuating. Uh, we could have seen the whole regions that were going back and forth between various dynasties at that moment. Uh, Piast, Rurikids, Przemyślids, Ottonians, local potentates, even Slavian Slavic nobles. And this ritual of invoking a ruler's name um, gave the quasi-administrative power. Uh, this could have been an effective tool for the establishment of political power, 
an absent monarch could be solemnly remembered and proclaimed at the crucial feasts of the Christian liturgical year in all of the churches within his realm, even in the centers of disputed territories, like in Prague, Meissen, Kołobrzeg, Przemyśl. In this way, the ruler was symbolically present as one of the highest authorities mentioned, for example, alongside the Pope and the local bishop, as in one of the ritual exulted finale, the ending of the exulted chant, which was performed at the feast of Easter. And I have also a reconstruction of this chant. Um, this reconstruction is based on a much later Polish manuscript with the line music notation. But again, it is still worth listening how this practice might have looked like. And it is pretty straightforward to catch the name of the ruler when it is proclaimed. Let us listen to this. It's Isabella Burns who is singing now the exult based on later Polish source. So this was just one example of the ritual proclamation of our ruler's name, but uh, there were other numerous occasions to invoke the ruler's name. Uh, during Great Friday um, prayers, um, uh, orazione solemnes, during devotive masses, um, and the many other liturgical occasions when uh, the ruler was entering the city. So basically, this invocation of ruler name was much more open for understanding, not only by the well-educated clergy, but also because of its straightforward means to the um, people who were not learned. Mm. So I had been wondering, um, it obviously was in the monasteries, but how did it get out to the people? And not many people would have understood Latin. Um, another question, though, your your recordings are women singing would it have been women for sure not for the exalted because to perform the exalted uh, you had to be uh, ordained or you had to be at least the deacon whereas the chant it's um, it was possible in the female monasteries to perform various chants and anuare uh, colamos actually could have been uh, performed more broadly must be quite demanding to be a deacon. You've got to know everything about the services and you've got to be able to sing. Um, and thinking about the deacons, the monks, the monasteries, uh, and the fact that all these sacramentals, these missiles had to be transmitted and carried around the country, that demanded an awful lot of educated, literate people. How on earth did Maishko I get these educated, liter literate people? Where did they come from? And how did he pay them? Well, obviously, introduction of Christianity was a monarchical business. Um, without the involvement of the ruler, it would have been hard to imagine in the spread of Christianity in the countries of the younger Europe, uh, which joined Christianity around the year 1000. 
And we do know a little bit about this patronage of Piasts over the uh, Christian clerics. Uh, for most, Bruno of Querford informs us about the missionary effort in the area. Uh, we know about Benedict and John who came from Italy to spread gospel in the newly converted lands. But we also know about the local monks. Uh, these are the Slavic Isaac and Matthew uh, that are also mentioned by Brun as the members of this community uh, in Poland. And we do hear about uh, numerous other clergymen. Yeah, but I'm just still wondering if you have a network of churches throughout a vast realm, you need people in these churches, not just missionaries traveling in. How did you get that level of education for the clergymen? They were mostly trained uh, outside of Piast Poland, uh, but soon uh, institutions were established uh, for sure when the bishoprics are instituted uh, more broadly with the separate province in Gniezno. This uh, for sure suggested that the level of education must have been prepared to run those uh, institutions. But speaking about the churches and the architecture, this is a very interesting question also, and we are quite fortunate to find the Caudus Basilica. Uh, and this basilica illustrates the verve of the Piast investment in sacral stone architecture. It's a three-nave basilica constructed in a site on the eastern side of the Vistula River, far away from the Piast centers. So this illustrates how intense was the effort to mark the region as a Christian one, because this type of architecture, probably the tallest in the surrounding area, was a clear sign of Piast's power. And it also visualized the unity between the central government and the worship that took place. And speaking about the people, probably they were forced to attend services uh, in every regulation of a monarch that introduces Christianity, we do find sources mentioning the forced attendance of Sunday Eucharist. Yes, I wanted to ask about that. Um, they, they introduced the religion. How did they then enforce it? And did they have other laws or was it just, you shall go to Mass on Sunday? How do you know it's Sunday? Yes, this is a very good question. Alas, it cannot be answered so precisely because the statutes that were instituted during the Christianization, they have not survived. We only have scraps of possible legal institutions and decrees. One of them is preserved in Titmar's chronicle. Titmar was a bishop of Merseburg is a newly established diocese in the 10th century. They were keen on spreading the faith among the local Slavs and also the Germanic people. And he uh, transmitted something that could be perceived as the scraps of Boleslav's regulation. I quote, anyone found to have eaten meat after Septuagesima, which is a Sunday before the official start of the Lent, is severely punished by having his teeth knocked out. The law of God newly introduced in these regions gains more strength from such acts of force than from any fast imposed by the bishops. So wrote Titmar. 
but it meant that Boleslav's people were supposed to fast longer, to mark them as sincere Christians, but also to mark them as Polish. I so, love that impression that they will have their teeth knocked out. <laughs> um, you've mentioned the lengthening fast for for the Lent. Were there any other regulations that were brought in within Polonia that identified the people of Polonia as Polish? Actually, mm, we only can uh, operate with scraps. So we do have uh, local coins with the mm, text Vinces Polonia. The vast majority of the coins minted by Boleslav between 10 and 1025, they contain this text, Princess Polonia. We are now far from liturgy, but as the new name Polonia was promoted among the clerics via the liturgical text that I mentioned, Anuare Colamus chant, or the lives of St. Adalbert, so the words engraved in coins also served to spread the new political identity within Poland. But yes, uh, we alas, do not have too many sources to pinpoint very specific um, legal codes that were inserted during the first Christianization period. But I suppose you've got a mixture of the liturgy and some coming into a vernacular language that ordinary people could understand. You had the coins, you had the buildings, you mentioned uh, churches and temples. So there was that visual and aural impression that something had changed. Indeed. And I would also add, uh, would like to add, um, speaking about the experience of liturgy, that usually we perceive liturgy as this arcane domain that was totally inaccessible to the people who were living in those strongholds. But in fact, we know from contemporary preaching of missionaries, not only in Poland, but in general, that usually the preaching was performed in the vernacular. So the mysteries were explained, of course, in a short form, and uh, maybe not all the liturgical nuances, but the core message of liturgy was transmitted to the broader strata of society. I don't want to overstretch that liturgy was universally shared. This is for sure not the not the, the experience of liturgy around the year 1000. But I think that even in the realm of liturgy, certain basic message could have been explained. Another issue that is very often raised is the existence of the Slavic liturgy. Uh, because we do know that in Bohemia, for example, there are church institutions that are using Slavic liturgy, which could have been directly understood by the audience of those rituals. It's absolutely fascinating to hear how a church liturgy, which seems to me so arcane, could have such a profound political significance. And fascinating to see how a country in concept is being created. You, you conquer a land, but then you've got to turn it into a country. That's fascinating. Yes, definitely liturgy was one of the efficient tools in political identification. So not yeah. only the sword, so to speak, uh, 
not only the silver that was infiltrating the Slavic lands in the later 10th century, but also rituals were necessary to create the social cohesions. But I guess we just touched the surface of this issue. So uh, anyone who would be interested would need to delve a bit deeper. So I can only refer to the political liturgies book that I recently co-edited or the forthcoming articles in the journals that offer more evidence and uh, more nuanced uh, perspective than it is possible in an interview. That was very nice. Thank you, Karen, for having me here. Well, Pavel, thank you. It's been really, really interesting. And for someone who came from an island, which it, it was created into a country way back in Roman times, for me to see how a country can be created as a concept through liturgy as part of that concept creation has been fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you, Karen. Today, I've been talking to Pavel Figorski about his work on early Christian liturgy and its influence on state formation and building a political identity in Polonia around the year 1000. I hope you found it interesting and as thought-provoking as I did. My thanks for everyone to listening, and please do look out for the next MISAM podcast, in which we talk to MISAM members and associates about their recent or ongoing research into the medieval world of Central Europe. And if you or your colleagues are doing research that you would like to talk about on the MISAM podcast, please do contact me through the MISAM board or the MISAM website administrator. I'm Karen Culver for the MISAM podcast. Thank you and goodbye until the next time. 